Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. Today we're going to talk about a company called Ozzy Media, which um, you'll be forgiven if you hadn't heard of them until this week. And frankly, if this is the first you're hearing about them, it's completely understandable. Despite their um, ambitions and a hubristic name, Ozzy Media never quite had the popularity that they claim to have, a fact that um, has caused their recent downfall to be uh, much publicized in the last week or so. Um, Ozzy Media is a company that, as best I can tell, did like blog posts. <laughs> is, is that yeah. what we're talking about um, here? We are. But first, I want to take slight issue with your characterization of Aussie Media as a hubristic name, because in fact, the about page of Aussie Media says that that's not what they read into the poem Ozymandias, uh, but rather that it is a challenge to dream big while staying humble. There's also there there's also at least one person who has said that it's just because the company's founder thought Aussie sounded cool, which to be fair, it does. Yes, I, I don't know. It makes me like. It, the name itself is a little hokey, just like them. And the fact that most of our listeners would never have heard of Ozzy until this week at most uh, is kind of the point of the story of this like underground media company has uh, exploded in the most hilarious way possible. Underground is sort of like the opposite of their ethos, though. They were very much um, they were led by a man, Carlos Watson, who um had very ambitious goals for what the company would become and was not shy about sharing those goals with his workers. Still not um, shy about sharing those goals, despite the fact that the company has shut down. Well, sort of. Maybe. Maybe. We, there's. It's almost hard to know where to start with this company because <laughs> it's there's so much that has come out in just the last week. Um, I actually yeah. had heard of Ozzy before this last week because in 2018, they had a festival in New York city. Um, one of these ideas festivals that um, really stretches the definition of festival. But um, at Ozzy fest 2018, they had such speakers as Malcolm Gladwell and Alex Rodriguez and <laughs> Hillary Clinton. <laughs> That that is that is the trifecta right there. That those right there are like the peak idea people. Like if I want a great yeah. idea, that's, that's you can so sort annoying. of understand the ethos of Ozzy in those three people. There's not much at the center of it all. Just a desire to be wanted and popular. Don't um, we all have that really? Right deep down. Now the reason that many more people now know about Ozzy is because as was exposed in the New York times last week, one of their founders um, committed just incredible amounts of securities fraud 
in on an investment call with Goldman Sachs when he impersonated a YouTube executive in order to inflate the company's uh, views on YouTube. When you when Goldman Sachs accuses you of securities fraud, <laughs> you messed up. You really messed up. You know it's real securities fraud because you know game recognizes game. It it was pretty. So we're talking about. Aussie Chief Operating Officer Samir Rao. And in all of these companies that we've talked about, Away, uh, WeWork, I'm trying to think there's at least a third one in this. Uh, we I don't think we've talked as much on the show about it, but Theranos, there's always like a second in command. Sometimes it is the CEO. Sometimes it's the CEO's spouse. Sometimes it's a co-founder who is slightly less of a major problem for the universe than the- <laughs> A little the, less megalomaniacal. Yes. And that's Samir Rao, which is very interesting because pretending to be a real YouTube executive, as far as I can tell, I like my understanding is that he was pretending to be a person that exists yes. on these calls and doing that is some Bond villain level stuff. <laughs> he apparently- was using a voice modulator in this call in order to, you know, affect the tone of a YouTube executive. So you're strengthening my point. Yes. <laughs> Wait, Just, hold on. We have voice modulators now that mimic the tone of an executive. How do you auto-tune that? Is that just everything comes out in like a weirdly peppy way? Well, he needed the modulation because he had previously been on the call as himself. <laughs> is the thing. So he couldn't have just used his normal voice. This is, oh my I, God. I believe if I remember right from what I read, like he had told them that an issue had occurred and they would have to drop off of the video portion of the call and just move to audio before genius, genius. You know, bringing in the By YouTube the way, executive. I want to be clear. Like, I think Ozzy is making a very strong campaign for a genius award right here. It's funny you should mention that because Ozzy <laughs> actually had themselves genius awards. This oh, was yes. what they called their scholarship program for like aspiring <laughs> high school executives. And when, wait, did you just say aspiring high school executives? Because that's that the sort of person the that they would grant scholarships to. Yeah, fair enough. It's, now, let me ask you this. Did they get there ahead of us is the question mark? Uh, yes. Uh, from Wikipedia, Damn. this started in like 2015. So the one time, so we gave them the one victory. That's the one time they've been ahead of anybody. <laughs> the thing is, they've pitched their brand on being ahead of everybody all the time. They have like constantly brought up the idea that they've been able to highlight these figures before they became household names. Um, they've cited Trevor Noah as someone they yes. discovered before he was a household name. They cited um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Aaron Judge of the New York Chris Yankees, uh, like, Brett yeah. Kavanaugh even. What? <laughs> yes, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh as someone Ozzy cited <laughs> as having discovered before he was a major player on the judicial yeah, scene so, so it's people, so you know. it's their fault well yeah. the thing about that is none of those claims are actually true um, <laughs> exactly there we in go in the aftermath of you know the new york times expose written by ben smith about uh, 
Aussies, you know, securities fraud and everything like that. There's been a lot of investigation about everything else that's wrong with the company. And some of that is everything. Yes. Um, Some of that investigation has been like uh, Joshua Benton at Neiman Lab, who uh, actually dug into these claims that they were first on the scene and finding that Trevor Noah was, you know, a big hit. And what came out is that they'd written like a 500 word article about him that mostly summarized his Wikipedia page like four days before he became the Daily Show host which was after he had already been on the daily show as like a regular correspondent. Yeah. Yeah. That's, Oh my God. It really is. I think you nailed it with your phrase, high school executive, because this is a teenager's idea of what running a media company is like. It's you, you say that you're doing the next and the new, and then you just copy down Wikipedia articles and take out a few sentences here and there. So the teacher doesn't catch you plagiarizing. For sure. pitch themselves as cutting edge and, you know, be on the inside of tomorrow or something along those lines. At this point in, in our lives, I think we need to understand that anybody who says that they're on the, the cutting edge or they're, they're predicting things before they happen is full of crap and there's no way around it. Like there's, there's no possible way that they're actually doing any of this. Hold on. So are you saying we should prefer people who say they're predicting things after they happen? Okay. So... (laughs) There, it is, it is really, it's very hard. So we've brought this up with a number of different sectors and whatnot, but it is hard to overestimate the level to which just saying that you're visionary, that you're cutting edge, that you're modern, that you're newfangled, although that's, you know, an insulting word usually, but the level to which that earns you a credibility that you a hundred percent never deserve, if you use those words. Um. To a point where it's annoying because as the opposition to that, you don't want to be painted as being, um, you know, as being as being decrepit or as being stuck uh, in the will, stuck, stuck in your in ways. Mind. Yes, there we go. As being obsolete is mm-hmm. really the word I'm looking yeah. for. But in all of these respects, no matter what sector you're working, whoever is cannot shut up about how they are. Uh, I think Ozzy's thing was the next and the new which is like the worst Norman Mailer novel ever. If if you if you hear somebody talking about that sort of thing, you run for the hills, no matter what sector you're in, because they are full of crap. And you know that just hearing them talk about it. Yeah. Yes. There there's a sense I get about this Carlos Watson character, and he very much is a character. Um maybe you've met this type of person. I, I know I have on a, at a couple occasions in my life of a person who likes telling stories about themselves and they aren't particularly interested in whether those stories are true or if you care about what's in the story, but they like talking about themselves. And you know, one person could call them a habitual liar. That's true. <laughs> but I don't know if they even mean malice by what they're doing. They just, you know, like inflating themselves. And as long as they aren't becoming United States president, more <laughs> or less, they don't cause too much harm. So you heard it here first. Carlos Watson will be the next United States president. Well, so and that's that's perfect timing, Ryan, because I definitely want to go back and talk about Carlos Watson and the fact that in the relationship between him and it is got to be some kind of relationship, uh, like 
work spouses definitely going on because you can't cover for a psychopath like Carlos Watson the way that Samir Rao did and and like be the better person. Like Samir Rao committed legitimate fraud which and security fraud. The which company was excused-, excused as being part of like a mental health break. Yes. Uh, yeah, a mental health crisis, mental which health is now res- which they insisted was now resolved because that makes it okay. <laughs> Which, like, I know we're all for, you know, better <laughs> mental health yes. treatment and awareness, but... <laughs> Come on, guys. Uh, but, like, out of the two, Carlos Watson is still the worst person. And that's just, that's a level of bizarreness that is still shocking even in 2021. After we've discussed WeWork uh, extensively at this point. I, I also want to say, Ryan, uh, one of the articles that you supplied, and and I think it was the Dan McQuaid article from Defector called Aussie Media is a Monumental uh, Bummer. He talks about how, and you just kind of did a light version of this, but still, like, I, I had to grip my teeth a little bit, where they talk about uh, Ben Smith, the, the guy who wrote the New York Times piece, right? He had to disclose that he's met Watson, that he's been on one panel with him. He did not disclose that he's done other appearances with Watson and a bunch of other things that they've had in common. But he mentions uh, that Ben Smith said at some point, I think on social media, not in the article, that people like Watson, you know, they're strivers and blah, blah. And he's saying, how do you get to the point? Like, what do you have to do to get to the point where you get called a habitual liar? Right. And it really seems to be a thing where it's as long as he's nice to the right people, yeah. which apparently doesn't include Sharon Osbourne, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> but as long as he's nice to the right people, nobody will actually tell him uh, or nobody will actually say openly what he is, which is he's a pathological liar. Like it, it is, and whether he means malice or not, the end result of this is a huge negative for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. And while, you know, you can excuse some of his delusions of grandeur, maybe there are people who, you know, do describe actual malice in Carlos Watson's actions. You know, one of the reasons that we're talking about this show on or this story on punching out here today is because, you know, people had to work for this guy. And what they describe is behavior that is textbook abusive boss stuff, you know, in the aftermath of the New York Times report. There were all sorts of outlets interviewing employees of Ozzy, you know, trying to find out what exactly happened here. And staffers described a lack of sleep because they were working, you know, 18 hour days just to do really whatever it was that Watson wanted them to do at the time. Um, They would shift from project to project. Carlos Watson had a TV show coming up, apparently, that was, I think, slated for some streaming service or other. And that was named The Carlos Watson Show. Like, it, it multiple, two of the articles, at the very least, both mentioned that the thing with Ozzy is that it was very clearly um, transitioning into becoming Carlos Watson brand, LLC, you know? It was, it was getting to the point where it wasn't about creating a media company it was about getting enough seed money to make Carlos Watson a household name and then possibly United States president. And he was getting there. He was like on the late show earlier this year. Mm-hmm. He was on, he was going to host a show on A&E. I think it was about mental health awareness, by the way. 
Hilarious. So I guess now he has a story to tell on that one. Oh, wait, it got canceled. <laughs> but yeah, like there was one story uh, from one of the staffers who said that she was working 18 hour days as his personal like brand rollout person for the Carlos Watson show that she had panic attacks, had to take time off, then had to go to outpatient therapy or base uh, for severe depression. And that I guess it was Samir Rao called as the head of HR, which didn't exist as a time. They didn't have an HR department, which we've talked about how HR sucks and everything, but not having one is also a huge red flag. Samir Rao posed as the HR. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he posed and said, I'm the HR person. Let me know all of her medical. This man records. loves nothing more than pretending to be other people. <laughs> Samir Rao is like, Samir Rao should have been an actor. This person does not want to be themselves, clearly. That is theater kid energy to the max. It's, yeah, and um, what is it? Eugene Robinson, who was an editor-in-large, at-large, pardon me, uh, for the the site. And uh, he mentioned something that I found particularly kind of heartbreaking because, you know, I think on Punching Out, our line is generally that representation matters, but it's not the be-all and end-all. And he says, uh, in, in one of the articles, he says, you know, this is the first time I had a boss who looked like me, and this is the worst I've ever been treated. I may not be getting that quote exactly right. It's but it, more or less right, yes. But then at the end, he says, but the great thing about it is that because of the mechanics of the melting pot in America, by the end, it didn't matter. Everyone was being treated like you can do the rest of this yourselves. And, you know, when when you see people calling for diversity in journalism or education or engineering or space or whatever it be, one of the things that is often swept under the rug is that because so many of these businesses, especially now, or industries, I guess I should say, depend on a bunch of rich people who want to think of themselves as good people who will get into heaven. Spoiler, they're all going to hell. But they they want to think of themselves as good people. And so they're desperate to support what they see as a an entrepreneur of color or as an initiative that will help communities of color or whatever. And that opens the door to somebody like Carlos Watson, uh, who, you know, his being black has nothing to do with him being a habitual liar. Um, but it gave uh, people like Laureen Powell Jobs and and people like um, his chairman of the ward, Mark Lazary, a little like spiritual upper because they were giving money to a non-white person to do things. And that meant that more abuse got shoveled the way of the people who worked at Aussie. Eugene Robinson, the editor at large that you had mentioned, um, uh, previously had a career in music, I think still sort of performs at tours and such, um, and wrote a lengthy article about his experience at Aussie for his uh, personal Substack, which he had been told by executives at Aussie to stop doing. Uh, even though he was doing it on his own time, which had shrunk greatly since the pandemic when he'd been tasked with transcribing Carlos Watson's television show rather than doing any reporting of his own. Can you imagine what transcribing that man must be like? <laughs> Robinson does not describe it as a particularly pleasant work. Um, transcribing famously bad on its own, but he he quotes uh, Watson as saying, you know what you do when one of your investors makes a racist joke? 
you take it because this is about making it. And that's sort of Watson's outlook on, you know, rising to the top. You know, he very much had a meteoric conception of himself in this way. But Robinson in this Substack piece goes on to describe what he, he calls the nadir of his experience at Ozzy, which lasted for six or seven years, I think, where, you know, he had wanted to do perform at this festival in North Carolina on a Saturday with, you know, his band that he had for, you know, many years at this point and gets told to drop this engagement because Carlos Watson wants to have a meeting with him that Saturday and it cannot be pushed to Monday. He gets told, you know, if you go to that concert on Saturday, don't bother coming into work on Monday. So he shows up for a 9 a.m. Saturday morning meeting. And when Watson sees him, he asks if he slept well last night. And Robinson answers, you know, honestly, no, given that he had been threatened with his job. And so in return, Watson tells him, you look tired. I tell you what, go home, get some sleep, and we'll see you on Monday. The day that Robinson had wanted the meeting originally. Wow. So this is uh, this is not the the last time that I'm going to bring this up, but uh, to satisfy everyone in the audience who has been waiting for beta breath with beta breath, pardon me for this part, and Lou who has tried to start a running bit of preempting this. <laughs> so I teach for a living. No. And anyway, um, where I'm going with this is that these are the things that. <laughs> that administrators at schools think teachers do. And I think the reason that they think that, because it has been a longstanding belief of mine that school administrators are now trained the same way other bosses are with no uniqueness to account for the fact that they operate in educational institutions and not a media company built on nothing mm-hmm. and, and no real audience and paid for low quality traffic. And all I can think is that they think that we do this because they see that as examples of being a bad boss and a bad leader. And for some reason, when they come in, they they assume that that's the kind of thing we're doing. It's like, why would I ever do that? That's not efficient. That's not helpful to anybody. Nobody's getting anything out of doing that to a person. Unless you're Carlos Watson or that type of person who needs that for your kind of self-aggrandizement pile. Like you you have to be a very specific type of personality to do that. One that a lot of people seem to think we are in the classroom and are perfectly fine taking from some of the worst people on the planet because they have money. Yeah. Um, And Robinson, unfortunately, was not the only person with experiences like this with Carlos Watson. Um, there's a CNN article that quotes from several workers who obviously wish to remain anonymous for fear of Carlos Watson's wrath about, um, you know, their experiences there. I'll, I'll quote from the article. Um, Weekends were not typically for rest at Ozzy. Sunday meetings were a regular occurrence. Prior to the pandemic, these meetings were in person at the office in Mountain View or sometimes required staffers to go to Watson's home. The time of the meetings was described by former staffers as a moving target. One former staffer recalled a typical kind of thing would happen would be, for example, that just five minutes before a meeting was supposed to begin, Watson would push it back two hours and then still end up being 20 minutes late. 
you know, normal. Yeah. You made this point on our epi- our most recent episode, Noah, that if you did this, you would be fired. But there is a very different standard for those at the top of companies than what they hold everyone else to. I, I think that's why you become a boss, isn't it? It is ultimately about the fact that, and we've said this time and again on Punching Out, that it makes your problems somebody else's problem. So if you are chronically late, now that isn't your issue. It's an issue for your employees to deal with. They're the ones who have to hang around waiting for you to get your butt down there. And I mean, nobody, these these articles describe um, an environment where Carlos Watson would yell at people until they cried and then yell at them for crying, which again is sort of that that no-win situation where your boss wants to get off on the power surge of yelling at you, but then once you've cried, because you know tears naturally cause a human impulse where we feel like we've done something wrong, then yells at you to assuage his guilt. So it, if he even has any. But there is there's like this weird... Everything at the company, every piece of the environment that they talk about is about how this was always meant. This company was always living or dying with Carlos Watson. And that's why now, even though the company, any sane company at this point, would shut down, it kind of has to. He's still going on all these shows and talking about how this is going to be his Lazarus moment or his Tylenol moment. Now, is this a generational thing? Because I had never heard this term before. Tylenol moment. Did you know about the Tylenol poisoning? I did know about it, but uh, let's not use that as any kind of generational (laughs) guide. Because who knows? I I knew about it as an urban legend. Uh, Yeah, the idea that that people were going in and, and poisoning Tylenol pills. And that it... I did not know that it... I, I had always heard about it as an urban legend. I did not know that apparently it was a hoax by the company that made Tylenol. Oh, no, it really happened. Eight people died. No, but apparently they were saying that it was a nationwide epidemic of the thing. Yeah. No, it was just eight people, but then like that's how we got safety uh, stuff on all your medicines. And that's why it says, don't take this drug if the safety seal has been broken or anything like oh, that. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to admit here, <clears throat> I misread. My bad. I think I'm confusing two paragraphs here. Uh, <laughs> what they said here was that it was a, that Carlos Watson is talking about how the Tylenol poisonings were a PR triumph for Johnson and Johnson. So eight people died, but Johnson and Johnson got out of it with the safety caps and, and looking great. My, they came back stronger than ever. You, you I, gotta... I just did something Carlos Watson is never going to do. I admitted a mistake. <laughs> got him. I don't know if you mentioned this in the long line of things Carlos Watson did. There are so many things, um, but the defector, <laughs> the defector article does mention one anonymous staffer saying that um, Watson threw a book at her, um, which obviously goes well beyond even normal bad boss behavior. There is this detail though that the book his title is the right. hard thing about hard things. Building a business when there are no easy answers. <laughs> How's it going, Carlos? Well, that's the thing, right? The the easy answers appear to be be terrible to your workers and be nice to people with more money than you. And that will get you there. That that's that's usually how building these companies works. It's it's knowing who's 
who's Butikas, and whom you're allowed to throw books at. And and that's that's pretty much the long and short of it. And if all else fails, you can drastically lie about how many people are reading your articles and watching your videos, which was a habitual problem with Ozzy that was only discovered in the last week once people started bothering to look into it. Um, I guess here's my question, because Ozzy also claimed that they had sold 200,000 tickets for a festival that could at most hold 15,000. Sorry, 15,600, pardon me. Uh, They repeatedly claimed to have filled a venue with like, what was it? It was like 50,000 people in a venue that could hold like 2,000 or something. Like it, it, it was, the level of lying was exponential. And I guess here's my question, and you both can can maybe answer this, because I don't know. Is it because no one had heard of this outfit that nobody cared to check? Because one of the things that meant that the Defector article mentions is if you make enough friends in New York media, then people will be supportive of you, even as your thing blows up, right? He, he likens Ozzy, or com- contrasts Ozzy, with Deadspin, and how his friends, uh, even people who didn't necessarily like what Deadspin was doing, were very supportive of them because of you know the circumstances that led to the downfall of that site and them starting and then them being able to start the factor. And he kind of says it almost as a if if this had been the case, if Aussie had not isolated itself so much, then maybe right now the coverage would be a little less um, gleeful, maybe. And I just, I don't know. Why is it that, is it just that they flew so under the radar that nobody cared to check about these things? I have a theory about that, but I kind of want to wait till the next segment to to talk about it because I have a theory. (laughs) I also have a theory that I think would be best left for the next segment. So on that note, why don't we go on to the next segment? Um, We'll be back after this break. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. In our first segment, we introduced the world to Aussie media years before anybody else had heard of them. (laughs) And, you know, at the end of that segment, Noah, you asked the question of why didn't anybody bother looking into any of the claims they had made, which were all factually wrong? By orders of magnitude. Yes. That's a very good question to ask. Uh, Your theory was that they were just simply too small for anybody to have noticed the size of their lies. Lou, you mentioned having a theory of your own. I'm curious what that is. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it kind of comes to the point where it, it's an intersection of what I think Ryan, you'd already mentioned in the previous section or segment about how the intersection of all of these people who knew each other and were successful and all of this networking that they did kind of created a situation where you couldn't really recommend something for investment and have it fail 
So like all of these people in, in media are super embedded in each other's business. So uh, Carlos Watson, for example, was on the board of NPR before he had to resign last week. Uh, he was BFS with somebody at Apple or, or whatever. And, and she's one of the people that was introducing uh, Carlos and, and Samir to the investment firms that were giving them money. And so like there's this, there's too much happening and they're all in bed with each other. And so there's an incentive on both sides, on both the Aussie media side and on the investor sides to not actually look too deeply into this, because if they did, they'd lose face to a certain extent, because if uh, you're, you're going to your friend and be like, hey, man, give me money. We're super successful. And then you're not like you're lying to them, but they don't want to look into it because they have that relationship with you. So if, if you're recommending somebody who's supposedly going to be a good thing, your recommendation has to go through. It can't be bad. You can't be like, hey, wait, guys, never mind. This isn't going to happen. And this is the same thing that happened to some extent with every economic crisis we've had in the past 20 years. Uh, just everybody supporting each other's bad decisions because to do anything else would result in either losing face or losing money or both. And so you just get this buildup of a lot of crazy. I I just want to be clear that the someone at Apple is Lorraine Powell Jobs, the widow of Steve Jobs, um, <laughs> or as or as Sharon or as Sharon Osbourne described her, because I'm we're gonna make damn sure we get into this in this segment. <laughs> um, I what was it? The wife of a guy that died and worked at Apple. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I fully admit, like, I didn't pick up on the fact that she was Steve Jobs' wife. Um, well, she's not somebody. still. Yeah, obviously, that, that relationship's That done. ship sailed. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm on Sharon Osbourne's level of, like, recognizing what names are and who people are. That's where you always want to be. <laughs> Badger pride. Well, we bring up Sharon Osbourne in this story because, um, you know... <laughs> The name Ozzy has certain connotations in pop culture. At least it once did. Um, yeah, that's why a, a certain por a portion of our audience has been thrown up the horns this whole time. <laughs> yes. Her husband, Ozzy Osbourne, uh, you know, famous metal musician, you know, people like him. He had Bad concert eater. tours called Ozfest. Um, there was, you know, a mention of possible trademark infringement from the Osborne family to Ozzy. And Carlos Watson claimed that those had been resolved and he was on speaking terms with Sharon Osborne about the matter. And Sharon Osborne asked about it, said, no, actually not. I have not spoken <laughs> to him. And and when I did, he straight up threatened to sue me. He He might as well, to finally make a pun on the poem that they misread, he might as well have told her, look at my work, she mighty, and despair. Because it, he basically went, we'll give you some shares or I can sue you. And she replied, shares in what? What do you do? Which, right. Which seems to have been the most... Useful question. The most <laughs> difficult question to answer when it comes to these people. What this company seems to have produced is uh, blog posts and some videos. I think they had a podcast or two. Um, and obviously this much ballyhooed uh, ideas festival, which, 
the, the last thing the world needs is another one of those. We have enough ideas. I, I think we're good <laughs> we're on ideas on for ideas. the time being. Yeah. Pure ideas. Awesome um, Fest, New York City. I'm thinking here. Yeah. Anyway, your theory, Ryan? I It's similar to Lou's. Uh, Lou, you talked about how the media industry is, you know, at this point, very much interconnected. Um, they, they all know each other. They all are somewhat invested in one way or another in the success of each other, even at competing outlets, you know, ostensibly competing outlets, because, you know, in an industry that concentrated, you know, things have ripple effects. And this sort of gets towards my theory, which notes that the media industry is a lot smaller than it once was. It is not um, something where every small town has a bustling newspaper full of well-paid investigative reporters. You know, if a small town has a newspaper anymore, they are largely recycling articles from national outlets that probably own them. I think that's a good point. I think uh, the size of the the landscape being so small means that there's there's a lot less room to to actually do investigation. In fact, one of the things that Aussie media kept pointing out to its staff was that if it had already been reported by the New York Times or Washington Post, they weren't supposed to do it. But then that honestly didn't leave them a lot to do besides chasing uh, other things. So they they had apparently once series of stories where they went to all 50 states and reported on something there and they went to every country and reported on three things there but actually it was sometimes smaller countries got lumped together apparently um it's there's there's just not as much out there and and you have to just take at or or we're forced to take at face value what somebody says because we don't have the time to actually look into it yeah i i think the point i'm trying to make is that there's a lot of investment in a company like Ozzy that is flashy and has these big ambitions. And at the other end of the industry, there is almost no investment in local media that just wants to, you know, cover town hall meetings or perhaps look into the lies of another media company. Yeah. And I know that for a while and mysteriously, it was mostly when the media was focused on uh, discussing, you know, like actual bad things that the Obama administration was doing in the limited way that they even did that. But for a while there, it was kind of passe to say that um, that we needed an uh, that we needed a media to be an educated populace. It was kind of the the province of like weird libertarians and Ron Paul types and whatnot. But the fact is, and if anything, I, I hope that the last half decade or so has really shown that we kind of do and that you cannot sit you cannot have a citizenry i mean there are obviously other things we're punching out we're a labor show you know we need time we need energy we need freedom from uh overly abusive work environments like aussie uh but another thing that we need is we actually do need a media that is willing to do this work because we shouldn't have to spend all our mental and emotional energy trying to evaluate claims made by rival institutions, or if we're going to do that, then we need the free time to be able to process them. And we need the education to be able to process them, which again, is something that it's just not being allowed to happen. We talk about literally today, 
I was at a presentation where we're talking about making our students digital citizens. And one part that we never talk about in that anymore is being able to recognize when somebody is selling you a line of BS online and, and not for personal safety purposes, but for political purposes or for, for economic purposes, like Ozzy was. And we just don't train that into people anymore, but we expect, but then we still laugh at them and victimize them and criticize them when they get taken in by scams and when they're convinced of lies that people don't, or when they just don't look into them. Why would they? I mean, Watson can say whatever he wants about how many people he drew to a festival. That doesn't really change your life or mine, which I think is, if I'm honest, that may be part of my theory. Like it just, it wasn't actively hurting anybody until, well, suddenly it, it, it hurt Goldman Sachs. Why am I? Oh God. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing is, is nobody really wanted to look into the issue and they just turn, turn a blind eye until uh, some rich person starts like losing money. I would like to thank Noah for acknowledging the real victim in all this Goldman Sachs. <laughs> um, That's right. Senior, senior wall street correspondent, Noah. Yeah. You know, another thing with the media getting smaller is it's also gotten much more concentrated. There are outlets, there are like 10,000 digital media outlets in New York City. And, you know, the rest of the country does not have that same level of coverage or, you know, investment in their local media scene, basically. Uh, You might get some tech outlets in San Francisco and some culture outlets in LA, but other than and obviously politics in Washington, D.C., but outside of those hubs for one industry or another, there's not much in terms of, you know, a thriving media scene elsewhere um, in the majority of the country that is not those four cities. Yeah, and that's 100% by design, too. This isn't just a, a accident that has come into being. I mean, they definitely like to sell it as that. But at the end of the day, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post and however other many media things. He has a vested interest in controlling what we know and what we can see. And so, like, they have to control what we're doing. They're not going to put things where where it would actually be beneficial to the rest of us to do anything. I, I just want to remind everybody, democracy dies in darkness. Well, it's fun to poke fun at the Washington Post slogan, but as you mentioned earlier, there is like a public um, interest in having reliable media. There is sort of a, you know, a value to that, that even if it can't be measured in the only value capitalism measures, which is dollars and cents. Um, There was an article in The Atlantic just this week, which I think offers a useful contrast to the story of Ozzy. The headline is... What Iowa is losing as my hometown newspaper crumbles. Uh, The author is Elaine Godfrey. She's describing a local newspaper in her town called Hawkeye, which was acquired by Gatehouse Media in 2016 or so. And shortly thereafter, people started noticing a decline in the newspaper's standards, not just the number of people on the staff, but the quality of the reporting. You know, there were more typos than before because, you know, editors had to be let go. You know, this is the sort of thing that happens 
as millions of dollars go towards Ozzy, I think the Defector article notes that they had like a $135 million valuation. The companies with all this money are then turning around and gutting local newspapers that, you know, they can't value that highly. Well, it's, there's obviously there's concentration of power in every industry at this point because rich people rich people hate the idea that they have to pay anyone to do anything. And one of the ways in which they're doing, one of the ways in which they're, they're shaving away at that is by making it impossible for you to know, because, okay, here's the thing. If you are a rich person, if you are the kind of person whose loyalty is first and foremost to yourself and then to other rich people before it is to your country, to your community, to anything else, you will always have media that will reflect back at you your point of view. I mean, the Wall Street Journal exists. The Washington Post and the New York Times exist. They are slightly, very slightly different audiences. But ultimately, what they are spending their front pages on, what they are spending their their limited real estate on, on paper, that is the stuff that rich people want to see printed. And with just enough of a veneer of journalistic integrity to keep the rest of us reading and supporting them to the extent that we do. But local papers, I mean, they they don't have that cachet. And there is no, and to gut them is essentially an act of making it impossible for communities to know what is going on. And as we know now, in many of these communities, that's where you start to see problems happen, like the results of fracking, for example, or in uh, in, in places like border communities along Texas, right? That was where some of the most interesting political shifts have happened over the past eight years. And part of the reason that we're not going to know that is that the only time anybody ever talks to them is after an election every four years. In even places like, because what is it, the, the, is the Democratic Chronicle gatehouse now? Yes, it's Gannett, which is gatehouse. Which is gatehouse, yeah. And, How many layers to this turd sandwich knows? are there? But there's the the point is, even in, in places like ours, like you see people complain about our local paper not doing enough to cover these things. And staffers like respond naturally that we don't have the people. There's not enough that we can do. Like if you want to do it, that's on you. If you want to become like some people do actually try to do this now. They, they've tried to become citizen journalists because nobody is paying for that anymore. And I, I have to believe that ultimately this is about making sure that nobody has access to this information. This is, this is about making sure that you don't have an educated populace because, you know, I, I don't think that the percentage of people who trusted newspapers was much higher back in the day, but I do think the percentage of people who like read one might've been, it was one of the, number one, it was one of the only ways to get news, but number two, like you know, journalism used to be a very different profession. And uh, like, this is the week that we saw Facebook go down, right? And that we know now how much they have shaped the media landscape of the past seven years, like what a noxious influence they have been. And again, it used to be passe to say that these things are bad. And you were looked at as obsolescent or antiquated for saying that. And it turns out that the primitivists were right. (laughs) that actually these things were bad and did hurt us in the long run. Score another one for the Luddites. Um, <laughs> but think, we're also right. 
I, I think I stumbled onto a, a little insight into the deranged mind of Carlos Watson. Oh, no. Um, so he kept selling Ozzy, and I guess he will continue to sell Ozzy as uh, the like insight into the millennial mind and trying to get on top of and, and what he would sell himself to investors as at the media company who could get into the mind of millennials and it would understand that and would be, have direct access to the youth because uh, nobody else, the youth are hugely mysterious. We have no idea what they want. Uh, it's big mystery. And I think that Noah was saying basically that media in general wants to control what you're seeing and they want to be the leaders on what the talk, the, the discussion is. Um, manufacturing consent and and all of these ideas that we have out there and i think honestly like the idea that carlos was turning aussie media into just the carlos show uh is kind of part of that as well as he well understood that if you just put it out there and you sell it correctly that's what people will want so it's not about chasing the trends it's about starting them and it's about doing that and i think ultimately that's what this was all about to him and that's why it's not necessarily uh incompatible thought that what millennials want and what Carlo and making everything of the, the Carlos show, like those were two of the same things. So you heard it here first. Millennials want more Carlos Watson. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Another thing we're reporting first, (laughs) Um, you know, we talked obviously about the um, way that Aussie media was fudging their numbers, but, of course, over the last decade, that has been the story of digital media at large. Um, famously, Facebook was fudging its numbers as far as its um, how many people were watching its videos on its platform. And that led a lot of digital media editors to chase that rabbit into the famous pivot to video, you know, at the cost of many writers and many people whose uh, skills were not in video. And what they found at the end was that Actually, nobody was watching those videos. There was no money in it. Nobody cared about those videos. If it was longer than a minute, nobody wanted to watch them, which, I mean, really, why would you? I mean, I don't. Oh, wait. I knew that because we keep getting when during lockdown teaching, we were constantly told, like, you can't make first. It was 10 minutes. Then it was five. Then it was one. Uh, You know how much you're supposed to be able to get across in one minute. I don't know. But yeah, and, and it is it is always striking how much of this is just bald face lying? Like th- this is not complicated and it, and, and it never is. And that's what really, I wish that you could get across to people because they will invent these extremely complicated conspiracy theories for why this or that. And the thing is the real conspiracies are always just someone coming up with a line of BS and selling it as Lou said and selling it correctly. All you have to do is say your new fact with enough conviction and in today's landscape enough people will pick it up that that's that there will be no truth in the middle or whatever or there won't be you know any any kind of midpoint to reach or compromise to reach because there's nobody trying to argue the other side of it that you know it took years to find out that Facebook was fudging these numbers even when everyone kind of knew they had to be because it was insane to think that like we all knew this from our own internet habits 
and I think they're I think the last year and a half has really kind of exposed maybe and and maybe this is why people are looking at these things has really exposed the level to which a lot of us want to feel like we're smarter than the average bear especially when it comes to our media consumption and I think that's why you're finally beginning to see a focus on this because I think a lot of us said well I don't want to watch videos but that's me I bet a bunch of other people do and no, no one does. We're, no, no one wanted that. Facebook got away with it by assuming correctly that everyone would blame someone else. And one thing Facebook has been blamed for is the decline of local media. There's, I, I mean, the narrative isn't entirely wrong that Facebook has sucked up all of the advertising dollars to be had in journalism, and none of that is trickling down to local news outlets, which to some extent is true. But the Atlantic piece I mentioned earlier notes that uh, for this small town Iowa newspaper called the Hawkeye, that actually wasn't the case. Um, to quote, at the time of the sale to Gatehouse, the Hawkeye wasn't struggling financially. Far from it. In the years leading up to the sale, the paper was seeing profit margins ranging from the mid-teens to the high 20s. Gannett has dedicated much of its revenue to servicing and paying off loans associated with the merger rather than reinvesting in local journalism which is to say that southeastern Iowans are losing their community paper not because it was a failing business, but because a massive media holding company has investors to please and debts to pay. And debts that they are saddling the company with after buying it when it's profitable. That, I mean, there's nothing else to say. That's just tragic. It's, you know, there's nowhere else to go. It, it's sad to see a media company... Or, or a media company, sorry. It's sad to see a, a real newspaper that can provide information to actual people who live in a community and need that information losing out because Gannett just goes, mine now. Right. And unfortunately, Gannett isn't even alone in this. They're the biggest player when it comes to newspapers in this country. But we also have companies like Eldon Capital that are famous for doing exactly the same everywhere they wind up you know they gutted the denver post when they owned that um they bought the chicago tribune and proceeded to fire reporters and journalists there because that's what they do they cut costs in order to make profit off of just the bare minimum rather than invest in journalism that could well be profitable if it were invested in if somebody saw if some capitalist saw value in investing in it, but they have other priorities. That kind of number one brings us full circle to Aussie and it brings us full circle to the theories that you both had because after all, one of Aussie's things is that it didn't really have an audience. It claimed to be what millennials want as famously on, on human resentments. We determined that one time, but there wasn't actually any attempt to develop a real media audience. I forget in which of the articles it is, which this is becoming a bit of me not knowing which one is which, but one of them mentions that we probably could have spent time building an organic audience that would have been profitable and we just didn't. They, they were willing to pay for enough low quality click-through traffic, farming traffic essentially, to uh, so and, and then still fudging that, which is crazy. Like it, it's, it's a house of cards twice over. Um, and they were willing to do that because, again, this wasn't really about building a media company. This was the Carlos Watson show. And much the same way, all of these other companies, that's exactly what they're doing. They're just, there is a concerted effort to get all of us used 
to getting nothing, to having the lowest possible standards, which is weird because in, in terms of like when you ask people what they actually want, I think the demands are broader than they have been in a long time. I think people are willing to say, no, I want healthcare. I want a job that works reasonable hours. I want to be paid fairly for the work that I do. Now, mind you, this is America, so it's usually coupled. I want that, but not for that guy over there. But having said that, that's still kind of wild because not that long ago, it was, no, no, I want to be abused worse. Please <laughs> repeal the 13th Amendment. You know, that that will finally get us back to, to where we need to be. So that's something that I think is a positive development. And it is very clear that the rich and the powerful who control all of these media interests are trying to make sure that instead we all get used to being trodden on again and maybe even learn to like it again. And now I like I feel like I sound like a weirdo from the late 2000s saying this, but I think it's true. I think it's true also. I, I think there is something happening where people realize that what they were getting before wasn't actually what they wanted. You know, it, there moment. was a difference there. We've had that moment when you notice the Cadbury cream egg is much smaller than it used to be. Is it? Oh, yeah. Smaller than before, yeah. Mm. That's no good. (laughs) Um, um, You know, we've spent the last half hour or so talking about, to some extent, local media and the decline of it. Um, We might be remiss if we didn't toot our own horn a little bit. Um, You know, obviously... We've been airing the last four years now on a community radio station, you know, local media, if ever there was it. Um, and we do um, have an obligation to shout out the station way more often than we have been. You know, obviously, none of what you're hearing could happen if not for the work of a lot of people behind the scenes. Um, you know, we've obviously, when we were recording in studio, needed no small amount of technical help in order to record episodes. Um, and even now that we're recording remotely, that is, you know, very much a process that I'm sure there are a lot of people working on that whose names aren't on our show, but frankly should be. Um, you know, if you're listening to this on Wayo right now on Wednesday, you can stay tuned for Born in the Belly. That'll air at one. For this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. And this was punching out.